Father, as we gather today, we praise you because you are a God who provides. Everything in life that we need, we have because you give it to us so generously, God. We thank you that you are the God who fills us with good things. That even as times in our life change, that you stay the same and you are consistent. And God, we pray for those among us right now who are going through tough seasons, who feel like you have hidden your face from them, God. We pray for those who are discouraged, who are struggling with, with just difficulties, that you would be encouraging them, that you would be revealing yourself to them, that you'd be working in their situations, whether that's sickness, whether that's um, job difficulties, whether that's just lack of direction in life, whether that's overwhelming situations with school or difficulties in relationships, God, we pray that you would be at work bringing peace, bringing provision, bringing clarity, bringing just your guidance and your presence in these different situations. God, we pray that we would be a church who is constantly filled by your spirit, who's constantly aware of your presence in our lives, who's constantly living under your guidance and direction and in a way that pleases you. We pray that you would be working through this time together to help us to understand what that means and how to do that, that you would give us a desire to be people who live under the guidance and direction of your spirit, God. Pray that you'd be strengthening us as a community. I pray for the baptism and membership classes happening today, that you would be at work in that time to just help people take next steps in their trust in you and their obedience in you. God, we praise you for your love for us and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Right, you can take a minute and put your seats back in order as the band comes up to lead us in our next song. Shall we stand? No, I don't know about you guys, but for me, having brother Arnell come here and play this background music, like, yeah, we really miss it, don't we? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're playing ushers in the Holy Spirit, brother. And as, as, as Arnell was playing, um, I was, as we were praying in the back, as me and the other guys were praying in the back, um, I was particularly touched or moved because I feel like we're all here. Yeah, we're here as a family. We're here because we, we come for fellowship. We come to bring our kids for Sunday school classes. We, we come here because we recognize that it's, it's a day of rest and we want to give it to God. But there's an element of humility that we have or that we need when we come before the throne of grace. And it's the realization for us who are believers that something incredible happened on the cross. And that our God, a God who seems so unreachable, who seems to be up in the heavens, who seems so far away from us before we know him is really not because he's come to earth and he's paid a price for us and that he did it through suffering and as a church we want to remember want to, um, remember that this morning I'll read from Revelation 21. It says, It was Jesus' willingness to endure suffering and sorrow in a world of suffering and sorrow that ultimately rescues all who trust in him. It rescues all who trust in him from the very presence of any suffering and sorrow. This is, this is Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. And that's something we can look forward to, even right now. There will be no mourning, no more death, no more suffering, no more crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, and the new has come. Amen. So even though we want to celebrate our salvation that is provided through what Jesus has done on the cross, we want to remember the suffering that he went through this morning. Oh. 
praise and honor run to the oh that rugged cross oh that rugged cross my salvation where your love poured out over me now my soul cries out hallelujah praise and honor run The stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. Hallelujah, God, He's risen. He's risen. Yes, He's risen. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Where your love poured out over me, now my soul cries out, Hallelujah! Praise and honor. Run. Oh, that rugged cross! Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Yes, Lord, we sing praise and honor unto you this morning. And we pray and sing all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And I just want to invite uh, Daniel to come up now and lead us in our scripture reading this morning. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 21. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, everyone. So we have been going through the book of Ephesians in our sermons lately. Um, And as we've gone through Ephesians, we've seen Paul starts by the first half of the book is just all the amazing things that God has done in rescuing and saving Christians and his plans for the universe, which are huge and expansive and therefore making everything the way it's supposed to be throughout the entire universe. And then halfway through the book, he switches and he starts talking about, okay, so what? Like if God's done all that for us, how are we supposed to live in response to that? And so the past several times we've been in the book of Ephesians, we've been talking about what is this new lifestyle that Christians are called to live because of what God has done for us. And today, Paul's going to talk about that new lifestyle in some areas of life that he hasn't covered yet in this letter. So what we're going to see is that the Christian life is satisfied in Christ. And that has an impact on how we live. The Christian life is satisfied in Christ. And we're going to look at why God cares what we do in our bedrooms, how to quench our thirst and a new way of living. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done to rescue us and let us know you. I pray that you'd be at work today as we look at your word, helping us to understand it, helping us to live in obedience to it and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, Paul, in today's passage, he's telling us how Christianity calls for a new way of living. And one of the main areas he applies this to right here at the start of the passage is our sexuality. He starts out in verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then he talks about all these various types of speech, which typically involve sexual innuendo or locker room talk that have no place among Christians. And then he goes back in verse five and he says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's a huge statement, right? And I'm sure that raises tons of questions for us. Like we live in one of the most sexualized cultures in the history of the world. Like if you want to sell something, you know how you do it? You find a pretty girl, put her in a bikini and have her hold the product you're trying to sell. It doesn't matter if it's a lamp, it's going to sell it, right? Like that's, that's why they do this. They, they just know that sex sells. And so they put someone pretty in not many clothes and they use that to sell stuff to us. And, and add on top of that, the fact the internet now lives in our pockets. You can literally with the click of a few buttons access images of any sexual fantasy that the human mind can come up with. And it's there in the moment. And our society says sex is no big deal. It's just a fun activity you can do when you're in the mood with someone else who is in the mood. And when we've been living in that culture that's continually pushing these messages on us, it's no big deal. 
here, it's just fun. Like, see, this person who's so pretty is buying this product. Just, you should buy that product too. A passage like this feels jarring to us because it's so different than what we're used to. And there's a reason that this passage feels jarring for us. You know what? Because it's supposed to be jarring to us. Paul is saying when we become Christians, if you are a Christian, that comes with a whole new identity. And that identity carries a whole new and different way that we're called to live. And one of the areas where this new identity lives so wildly different from the old identity is our sexuality. Now, just to clarify, these warnings about sexuality are not because God's afraid of sex. It's not because God's opposed to sex. Like biblically, you know who created sex? God. Like when, when he created humanity, he designed the human body. He had the option to make it so that we just like reproduce asexually. Just like half of us blobs out and then there's a new person. Like he could have made us to work that way. He didn't. He made us sexual beings with sexual organs. You know, in, in the start of the Bible, when God first creates humanity, do you know the first, the absolute first command in the Bible ever given to humanity? I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with anything about eating from a tree. The first command given to humanity in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. You know how you do that? Lots and lots and lots of sex. Like the, literally the first command given to humanity in the Bible is to have sex. God is not afraid of sex. He's not grossed out by sex. He doesn't wish that there was some way that we as a species could keep going without needing sex. Sex was his good idea. So if that's the case, why all these warnings about sex in this passage? And it's because just like anything else in life, there's a right way and a wrong way to use sex. I mean, you think about a shovel, right? A shovel, if you need to dig a hole, it's a great tool to have. But if your child takes that shovel and uses it to attack his brother, it's not good anymore, right? <laughs> we all understand this concept on a logical level. And the more powerful potential for good something has, the more powerful the potential for evil as well, right? You think about something like nuclear power. Nuclear power, when used properly, can provide electricity, clean electricity for millions of people. It has great potential, far more than a shovel. But when you use it wrong, it can wipe out an entire city in an instant. The greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for harm. And I've said this before, Sex is powerful. It's more powerful than a nuclear bomb. Because a nuclear bomb can wipe out all the life on the planet, but it can never create new life. Sex can do that. Sex has a power that not even a nuclear bomb has. It has incredible potential for good. But because of that, it has incredible potential for harm. Right? And, and we know this. Even our culture that says sex is no big deal pushes in our face the, the seemingly contradictory idea that sex can do great harm. Look at the Me Too movement over the past few years. It's all these stories of people who have been harmed by people who use sex wrong, right? We understand that when sex is used wrong, it does great, terrible, lasting harm to people. 
Our world says sex is just physical, it's no big deal, but even the world recognizes it is a big deal. When it's used the wrong way, it hurts people. See, I think there's this, this caricature that the church is just stuck in old ways and wants to put boundaries on people and the world says we should be free. That's not the case at all. The church and the world both want certain boundaries on sex. The difference is the world says we should be free to move the boundaries as we want, depending on the mood of the day. And the church says, no, God has given us boundaries for human good and human flourishing, and we don't have the right to move that. That's the difference. We both agree sex when used wrong can be very harmful to people. And that's why we have these warnings here because Paul wants us to use sex in a way that prioritizes loving others, in a way that's good for others, not harmful to others, that seeks their good above our own, which when it comes to sex means using sex in the ways that God designed it to be used so that it can be a blessing and a source of life to others rather than a destructive force. As he says in this passage, it says it means avoiding sexual immorality and impurity, which involves any type of sexual activity outside of a monogamous, heterosexual marriage relationship. Biblically, that's what that means. So negatively, it means avoiding things like prostitution and adultery. It means not getting sexually involved with people we're dating until we're married to them. It means not using pornography. Positively, it means using sex as a way of showing our love and faithfulness to our spouses. That's what Paul is talking about here when it comes to sexuality. That's the way Christians are called to use our sexuality as a way of loving others. But Paul actually takes it a level deeper here too. Like as if loving others, not causing harm to them wasn't enough of a reason to honor God and obey him with our sexuality. He takes it a level deeper and gives us another reason that God cares about our sexuality. Like, yes, God cares that we love others and bless others through our actions. But in verse five, we also see that sexual immorality or sex is a matter of worship. Did you know that? Sex is all about worship. Paul in verse five, he groups together sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and idolatry, all under this same umbrella. Now, I don't know what comes into your head when you hear the word idolatry. Maybe it's, you know, you go into a restaurant and they have a little shrine by the entrance with a picture of some deity and maybe some incense or some fruit laid out there. That can be one form of idolatry. But biblically, an idol is anything other than God that we look to for our ultimate hope in life, our ultimate security, our ultimate protection. And idolatry is placing our hope in these other things rather than God. And so when Paul says sexual, sexual immorality and coveting and idolatry all go together, he's making a really deep and profound statement. He's saying, we only act in ways that God says are sexually sinful because we've got our worship of God wrong to start with. We only do things with our sexuality that God says are wrong because we, we don't worship God properly. 
We believe there are things we deserve in life that God's not giving us. He's holding out on us. And so we covet them. We believe that pursuing our sexual fantasies is gonna fill us up in those areas. And so we pursue different types of immoral sex as a way of, of getting what we feel like we deserve in life. But at the core, it's not about our behavior. It's about our worship of God. Our worship of God being wrong is what drives all of our wrong behavior. And that's why in verse five, Paul says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not just, oh, God's scared of this behavior. He doesn't like it. It's actually, God knows if you're doing this, it shows that your heart's not worshiping him in the first place. The the kingdom of God is about people loving God and, and placing their hope in him and following him. And this behavior shows that at the heart level, that's not happening that actually we don't want to be part of God's kingdom because there are other things we want more than him. And if you're here and you're like, Eric, I've messed up sexually. What does that mean for me? And just by the way, if you're like, I haven't messed up sexually, Jesus says in the book of Matthew, anyone who looks at another person lustfully has committed adultery in their heart. So we've all messed up, right? But there's this incredible verse in 1 Corinthians where Paul lists out a whole group of people, including the sexually immoral, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then you know what he says after? It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 6, 10 and 11, he says, and such were some of you. You were like all these people who do these things that won't inherit the kingdom of God, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Translation, who you were in the past, the mistakes you made, if you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, they don't define you. Your slate's been wiped clean. There's forgiveness for you. And as we've seen already in Ephesians, this forgiveness, this salvation that God offers us, it's a gift. The consequences we deserve for our disobedience, they've been born by Jesus in full. God's not sitting up there in heaven being like, ah, once they get themselves right, once they fix themselves, then I'll love them. No, he comes, he pursues us, he chases after us. He offers us salvation as a free gift when we're a mess, when we're at our worst. All we have to do to receive that gift is trust in him. And when we do that, all our failures, all our shortcomings, all our mistakes and sins are wiped away. And when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect because all he sees when he looks at us is the perfection of Jesus. So yes, sexual immorality is wrong. Yes, if if you're a Christian, God calls you to avoid sexual immorality. But if you've failed in this area, there's still hope for you. And Paul linking sexual immorality with coveting and idolatry. It shows us whether we think of ourselves as sexually immoral people or not, the thing that leads someone to sexual immorality is actually something we can all relate to. It's something we've all experienced. It's that feeling of an emptiness inside us. That feeling that there must be something more to life. Can anyone relate to that? That, that true life is available and it's just outside my grasp. And if I could do a little bit more, 
Maybe that's sex, maybe that's getting more money, maybe that's accomplishing more, whatever it is. If I could do a little bit more, I could have that true life. And if you're struggling with sexual sin because you're chasing that something more, or any type of wrong behavior that's driven by just, I need a little bit more. Me standing up here and saying, stop it, isn't gonna change your behavior. Because it's not gonna change that deep hunger and thirst and longing in your heart. There's still that deep longing inside you that's driving you back to that well to try and be satisfied again and again and again. If we're gonna have lasting change in our lives, whether in sexuality or other areas of behavior, we need to learn how to find our deep satisfaction, that, that fulfillment of those longings in God rather than other things. Which brings us to our second point, how to quench our thirst. How do we do this? And Paul tells us in verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Now, again, just like sex, we see throughout the Bible, alcohol, it's a good gift from God. It's created to be enjoyed by his people, but when it's used in the wrong way, it can be harmful, right? And so Paul's not banning Christians from any consumption of alcohol here, but he's putting limits on how we consume alcohol. And why does he do that? Because that same longing, that same disconnect between the way we feel like life should be and the way we experience it each day that drives us to sexual immorality is also what drives us to drunkenness. See, sexual sin takes the path of saying, I can get this thing if I just do a little bit more. If I just get the right sex, then I can have the true life I feel like I deserve. Drunkenness tends to more take the path of saying, I'm never gonna have it. I may as well numb myself to the pain. But they both come from that same starting point of feeling like there's something out there that I need that I don't have. Both of them are trying to fix the brokenness of the world and, and heal what's wrong in our hearts apart from God. Both of them are idolatry. And Paul gives us another way to live. Instead of being filled with wine to the point where alcohol controls us, he says to be filled with God's spirit to the point where the spirit controls us. The Holy Spirit is God coming to live inside of Christians, guiding us and teaching us how to live. Incredible gift. And Paul, see what he's doing here. It's so brilliant. He doesn't say, look, you have this longing, just ignore it, deny it, pretend it doesn't exist, move on with life and just do the right thing. No, he says, recognize that thirst. He doesn't say, shut down your emotions, hide from the pain of living in a broken world. No, he, he says, recognize these things. And when you see them, turn to the only one who can actually do anything to make it better. Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can do anything to make it better to satisfy those longings in our hearts. And how does he do that? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says the spirit will bring to our remembrance all that he said to us. Now, none of us have ever had a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus, as far as I know. So we don't have any face-to-face -face conversations with Jesus to be reminded of like the original disciples. But guess what? We're told 
in the Bible, that the entire Bible is God's word. It's God speaking to us. And so for us today, the Holy Spirit bringing God's words to remembrance means him reminding us of God's truth from the Bible so that we can live in response to that truth. So for example, we saw earlier in Ephesians, in chapter one, verse 10, it says, God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Like if you take that verse and you dig into it and you take time to truly understand what it's saying and get it deep into your heart on a level where it's controlling your actions each day, that's gonna change you. Because here's what Paul is saying here. Our, our world right now has this tendency for things to break down and fall apart and not work the way they're supposed to and disintegrate and die. And one day, God's going to fix it all. He's got a plan that's in motion right now that you and I are part of where he is reversing that process, where he's making it so that things, instead of going from order to chaos, they go from chaos to order. Instead of our bodies breaking down as we get older and stopping to function like they're supposed to, and then us dying, we're going to live forever with bodies that don't wear out. That's God's plan. And it's a plan not just for us as individuals, but for the entire universe. Like if we really get it worked into our our deepest levels of our being, that that's the type of story that we're living in. That's the type of world we're living in. It's going to change us, isn't it? And it tells us the answer to our deep questions. Why is there this disconnect between the way things are now and the way they should be? Well, the fullness of time hasn't come yet. God's plan isn't finished. We're still in the middle of the story, but we can have hope that one day he is going to make it all right. See, this verse, it explains that longing of our heart. It explains why we feel that disconnect in our daily experience, but it gives us hope and it directs us to the one who supplies that hope. And the Holy Spirit brings verses like this and others to our remembrance. So as we're going through the difficulties of day-to-day life and we're struggling with the brokenness of the world, and we're discouraged by this disconnect between how things should be and the way they are, we can live with hope. We can live with joy. We can live with peace. The Spirit changes us. He fills us up so that we can live the way we're meant to live. And Paul calls us here to be continuously filled with the Spirit. That's the sense of the Greek verb here. Not just be filled once, but be continuously filled. Biblically, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's a fact. But it's like in marriage. You know, in marriage, if you're married, some days you just feel such a strong and close connection to your spouse. And some days you're like, yeah, we're still married, but, eh. you know, maybe you've been going through a busy season and you just haven't had much time together. Like I haven't spoken to my spouse in a week. I'm still married. I still love them, but it's hard to remember what loving them actually feels like in practice. Or maybe one spouse does something wrong and they're embarrassed by it. They want to hide it from their spouse. And so they're they're trying to hide this. But the other spouse can sense something is off in the relationship. It's, It's sort of putting a wedge between you, making it difficult to connect. 
And then there are days where you sit down and you have these incredible, deep, heart-to-heart conversations. You feel like you're connected with one another. You feel like they understand you. You understand them. And you're like, I'm so madly, wildly in love. You know, like, those can happen, like, all three of those experiences can happen within not much time at all in a marriage. You're still married throughout it all, but your felt experience of what it means to be married varies from day to day. Well, the same thing can happen in our relationship with God. And obviously the parallel is not perfect. We can't hide anything from the Holy Spirit because he's God and he knows it all already. But on different days, at different times, we can experience different levels of felt closeness to him. There are days where we can feel really, really close to him and, and like this is the greatest thing ever and days where we're like, I know it's true that I have a relationship with him, but I haven't felt it in a while. And Paul's saying part of Christian obedience is being intentional in investing in our relationship with the spirit and intentional about doing things to put us in a place where we can experience that closeness. Just like it's important in our marriages to to do things so that we can experience closeness with our spouse, whether that's date night, whether that's setting aside time each day to have conversations with each other, whatever it is in your marriage, it's important to invest in our relationship with the Spirit so that His love for us isn't just something we know is theoretically true, but something we feel and something we experience is true each day. So how do we get filled with the Spirit? There are three things in this passage for us to see. First, the verb, this command, be filled with the Spirit, it's passive. It could be translated, let the Spirit fill you. Now, here's what that means. Being filled with the Spirit isn't about us having to go out and do some super spiritual, amazing thing to prove our dedication to God. God wants to fill us with the Spirit. We just need to remove obstacles from our hearts and from our lives that would make our hearts unwelcoming to the Spirit. So a first step, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, is confessing our sin. Confess any ways we've disobeyed God in our actions or our attitudes. Confess the things that we've put our hope in other than God. And that's a key first step to being filled with the Spirit. Second, this command is plural. I know English doesn't really reflect this well, but the command is not to you as an individual, it's to you as a church. If this was in Cantonese, it's not to lay, it's to lay day. It's to the group, which means being filled with the spirit in the way Paul is talking about here involves other Christians. It's not something we do on our own. As Christians, the entire church is called to support one another and encourage one another to be filled with the spirit. And then third, in Greek, it actually says be filled in the spirit, not with the spirit, which I know sounds weird in English, which is why they translated it with the spirit. But what's the difference? Well, if you look throughout Ephesians, Paul again and again and again has spoken about Christians being in Christ, about how all all our blessings as Christians come from the fact that we are in Christ which means our connection to the Holy Spirit and our connection to Jesus line up with one another. They're parallel to one another, which makes sense because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. But if that's the case, how do we draw near to the Spirit? The same way we draw near to Jesus, 
through faith. So whatever it is that helps us trust in God more, that helps us trust in his love more deeply, uh, whatever those things are, are things that are gonna help us in this process of being filled with the spirit. Again, not anything super spiritual, amazing. Most of it is pretty common everyday stuff like reading your Bible, praying, going to church, talking to other Christians about God's love. All of these can be tools to help us be filled with the spirit. And again, it's not that we do these things and we put God in our debt and he owes us this filling of the spirit. He owes us this experience of closeness. No, but what they do is they prepare our hearts so that when God comes and reveals himself to us, we're ready. We're able to experience his closeness. We recognize it for what it is and we're able to feel that closeness with him. And when that happens, we're filled with the spirit We're living out of that fullness and it's going to totally transform the way we live. Let's look at this new way of living. See, when the Holy Spirit is filling us like this, what do our lives look like? We see three things in this passage, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. So first, if if we're filled with the Spirit, he says we will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Our hearts will be filled with praise for God. It will overflow in song. And in our day, I know lots of Christians who love to just pop in their headphones, listen to some worship music, praise God as they're going throughout their day-to-day stuff. And that's great. But that's not all that this passage is talking about. Because Paul says, if we are filled with the Spirit, we will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it's not just about listening to songs about God. It's not even just about singing along with those songs when they're on. It's actually about singing these songs to one another. That's why we sing in church, because we're singing not just to God, but to one another. That's part of what our lives are gonna look like if we're filled with the Spirit. And why is that to one another part so important? Well, a couple of reasons. First, it means we're seeing each other regularly. Right? You can't sing to one another unless you're physically together. Part of what it means for us to be the church is that we're a family, we're a community. If we're singing to one another, it means that we as a, a community and a family, we're actually spending time together, which is great. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Second, it means when we meet up, we're not just meeting up to discuss politics or sports or the weather, whatever it could be. It means God is at the center of our conversation. There's something powerful about hearing God's truth from someone else. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been going through a hard time and and I'm like, oh, you know, Eric, just remember the Bible says God loves you and I don't feel it at all. And then I have a conversation with a Christian brother or sister and they're like, you know, God still loves you, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, he does. They said the exact same thing that I had told myself, but hearing it from their voice just makes it more real to me. There's a theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, sometimes the Christ in the heart of your brother is stronger than the Christ in your own heart. Like I've experienced that so many times in my life. And when we sing God's truth to one another, we have Christ coming to us from the heart of a brother or sister so that we can know experientially that God still loves us. God's still for us. God still has our back. He's still working for good in whatever we're experiencing. 
So if we're filled with the Spirit, we overflow in song to one another. That's the first thing. Second, if we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a hard one for me this week. A couple that I, that I love and care deeply about. Their eight-year-old son died of cancer last week. As I was preparing the sermon, I can't help but think about this couple. Like, what, it, what does this passage mean for someone in that situation? Giving thanks always and for everything. And I came across some helpful clarifiers that I think could be helpful for all of us um, from a couple theologians, Thomas Manton and John Stott, who I wanted to sh- I share these things with you because they were helpful for me in thinking through what does it mean to give thanks always and for everything when we're facing the worst, most horrible tragedies in life. So first, Christmas, Christian thankfulness doesn't mean we're called to condone or celebrate evil. Right? God hates evil. God calls his children to fight against evil. Paul is not calling us right here to thank God for evil as evil. Second, Christian thankfulness should never lead to insensitivity towards people in pain. Right? The Bible says that Christians are called to weep with those who weep. If someone is going through a great tragedy, never, ever, ever go up to them and tell them this verse. Well, you should just be thankful. That is not comforting them. That is not helping them have peace. If they slap you or punch you in the face, when you say that, you deserve to be slapped or punched in the face. Our thankfulness is not meant to be a shortcut to avoid painful and difficult emotions. Third, God is still God, even in the midst of the worst tragedies. And because he's still God, he's still working to bring good even in the midst of the worst tragedies in life. And so even in the worst tragedies, we can thank him for the fact that he's still at work bringing good. Even if we can't see how he's bringing good, if we trust his character, if we know that he's faithful to his promises, we can thank him for his promise that he will bring good from this even when we don't know how. And then fourth, God is still with his children in the midst of any tragedy they face in life. And so if we're Christians, we can thank God for his presence with us, for the fact that he's our comforter in the midst of tragedy. But it's still hard. How do we be thankful in the midst of tragedy? And what I've realized is you don't reach the point of being able to be thankful in the midst of tragedy unless your heart is thoroughly convinced that God is who he says he is that he's sovereign. So every single detail of your life is under his control, that he's loving. So he's working through all of it, every single detail for your good, that he's all wise. So he's not always going to give you what you want because you don't always know what you need and that he's patient. So he's going to take time to do all this. And, And you might not always see the results right away or even in this lifetime. But if we really believe that these things are true about God, and that God has this huge comprehensive plan for the world where in the end, he's going to make all things, even the worst things, right. And that even though we can't see how this fits into a beautiful plan, it's part of it. Then we're going to be thankful 
at all times because we're filled with the Spirit. We're not lacking. We're not covetous. We're not feeling like we need to do something more to get what we deserve in life. So the Spirit leads us to speak to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. The the Spirit makes us thankful. And third, he causes us to submit to one another out of reverence or fear of Christ. And submission, we're only looking at briefly today because the next two weeks, we're digging in deep on this. Um, But a couple things I want us to see. First, submitting means lowering yourself, putting yourself under someone. It's making a choice that the other person is valuable and that they're worthy of your love and service. That's what submission means. And I want us to just see three things about submission today. And then the next two weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into submission. But first, submission is for all Christians. There's not just submission to God, which all Christians are called to submit to God, but submission to one another. We're all supposed to look at every other person in the church and say, that person is valuable that person is worthy of my service. That's a call for all of us. There's not a privileged class that gets to be in authority and lord it over everyone else and then everyone else has to serve them. No, we're all called to submit to and serve one another. Just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, that's to be the default mode of operation for all his followers. That's the first thing. Second, and again, we're gonna unpack this in a lot more detail in the coming couple weeks. Submission doesn't look the same for everyone, right? If all Christians are called to submit to one another, then Christian parents and Christian children are each supposed to submit to one another. But a parent submitting to a child does not look the same as a child submitting to a parent, right? Can we all agree on that? Like a child submitting to a parent typically looks like respecting their parents and obeying their parents. If you as a Christian parent are like, well, my child submitting to me means they obey me, therefore I need to obey them as well. That's a bad choice. It's gonna lead to some bad decisions (laughs) that are gonna be harmful and destructive to your family. God created the authority structure in the family for a good reason. And he's given you a responsibility as a parent. And yes, you are, as a parent, called to submit to your children, because we're all supposed to submit to one another, but you don't submit to your children by obeying them. You submit to them by laying down your rights, working to make sure they're provided for, making sure they're protected. Those are the things that, that parents do to submit to their children. It's putting the child's needs above your own needs. The fact that we're all called to submit to one another doesn't eliminate the differences between us. It doesn't eliminate any type of authority or anything like that, but it does mean all authority must be exercised with a heart to serve and protect those under our authority. Authority is not for the sake of advancing ourselves. It's not for the sake of gaining ourselves more power. It's for the sake of serving and loving those under our authority. And then third, I know submission is not a popular idea in our culture. But guess what? It was not a popular idea in Paul's day either. No one ever has liked submission in the history of humanity. But when we submit to one another, it aligns us with Jesus. In Luke 2.51, it says Jesus submitted to his parents, not just to God as his father, but to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, to his sinful, flawed, messed up earthly parents, Jesus, the God of the universe, submitted to them and obeyed them when he lived on earth. And so submitting is a sign of being filled with the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and Jesus himself 
chose to live a life of submission out of love for others when he was on the earth. So when we're filled with the spirit, we sing to one another, we're thankful, we submit to one another. All of these things are signs that we have been filled with the spirit, but there's actually also a cyclical effect going on here too. Because as we do these things, we're further aligning ourselves with God and his ways. And it creates a more fertile ground in our hearts for us to continue being filled by the spirit. It creates a welcoming environment where the spirit wants to come and continue to fill us and let us experience his presence. So church, God cares how you live. If you're a Christian, he's called you to a new way of living, to let go of your old way of living, to stop trying to fill that emptiness that you feel sometimes with sex or alcohol or other behaviors that harm others. And instead he calls us to be filled with him. And this filling, it's not something we have to twist his arm to give us. It's not something we have to, to coerce him into. It's something he wants to give us. And when he fills us, it transforms the way we live. It leads us to speaking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It gives us thankful hearts and it leads us to submit to one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you teaching us how you want us as your people to live. What a blessing it is that you're not silent, that you don't leave us to figure these things out on our own, but that you speak to us so we can know your will for us. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the times we've failed to live in ways that honor you. I pray for anyone here today who is struggling with, with those feelings of emptiness and hunger and who's trying to fulfill those desires in wrong ways, whether that's sexually wrong ways, whether that's alcohol, whether that's something else. I pray that these people would feel that desire and turn to you as the way of filling it. God, let us as a church be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us encourage one another and, and, and share your word with one another and overflow in joy towards one another because of the amazing, glorious truth of what you've done to rescue us. Thank you, God, for who you are and how you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes up to lead us in our closing songs, I want to invite you to take 60 seconds to turn to the person next to you and share with them one highlight from today's sermon that you can take away and apply in your life this week.